In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Chencher Dorji, Bhutan's first psychiatrist and the professor of psychiatry at Kesar Gyalpo University of Medical Sciences of Bhutan. Dr. Dorji recalls his traumatic childhood growing up in Bhutan with a psychotic alcoholic father. He describes the impact of living in constant fear of violence, the resultant psychotic breakdown of his elder brother, and the extreme methods used by the shamans, lamas, and traditional doctors who were recruited to heal him. Dr. Dorji also recalls his arduous progress through medical training, special placements for psychiatry in Sri Lanka and Australia, compares Bhutanese and Western societies, and begins to consider the interaction between modern psychiatry and traditional Bhutanese approaches to mental health. So without further ado, Dr. Chencher Dorji. Dr. Chencher Dorji, welcome to the podcast. I'm so pleased to be talking with you today. Dr. Caroline Van Dam, a, a frequent guest on this podcast, has spoken very highly of you indeed, and was kind enough to put us in contact. So thank you very much, Dr. Chenterdorji, for agreeing to this interview. Good to have you. Thank you, Steve. I'd like to start, if we could, at the beginning of your life. You were born in 1959 in Bhutan, and you write in your memoir, there was no motor road, electricity, or modern amenities in Bhutan at that time. And life was very different then to how it is now. What was it like growing up in Bhutan at that time? Yes, uh, it was a very, very uh, different experience from what we live now in Bhutan. Um, obviously, there was no road, there were no vehicles, there was no electricity, there was no uh, running or piped water, there were no uh, so-called uh, safe sanitary situations. So, fortunately, we had very big houses uh, in the part of Bhutan that I live in, Paro. Uh, we have typically three, four-storied houses. The animals were living down on the ground floor. The second floor used to be granaries where we store all our food and grains. The third floor, uh, the human beings live. And this is where we do cooking, we, we sleep, we eat. And typically, uh, you know, the, the, we cook our food on those big hearths. And then we burn the big um, sort of uh, fires uh, in, in the house in winters to light the house as well as to keep us warm. So there is suit, black suit, all over the place. But we also have some reserved rooms for shrine, uh, where we have Buddhist statues and, and uh, Buddha statues as well as Bodhisattvas. And these rooms are usually reserved for the monks and, and, and visitors to the house. And, uh, you know, we, we are living with, with the animals, the pigs, the cows, and the hen and the dogs. So it was a lively uh, experience, but uh, nonetheless, it was a difficult uh, experience as a, as a child to grow up in that environment. Did you feel it difficult at the time? Was it a struggle at the time? Or is it only looking back now with the perspective of today that you see the difficulty? No, not really. I think now I can foresee that, yes. Uh, but at the time, we were enjoying life as much as anybody else would enjoy life in their own settings. Uh, you know, it's a huge community life. Uh, the whole extended family lives in the same house. And the whole village, uh, we know everybody. 
and uh, and we are very friendly neighbors and we are very very supportive of each other not just within the families but the whole uh, the community uh, knows each other they know your birthdays in bhutan we go by birthdays as years not as dates and months but as by years uh, we have this uh, this uh, 12 year zodiac uh, not zodiac but those astrological signs so i was born in the year of the peak and uh, yeah, so I think we enjoyed life as much as anybody else. Uh, but I think um, looking back, I think the ties within the families and perhaps the bonding with the families are much, much stronger than, than we have today. Uh, today, with all the distractions that we have in our hand, the television, the social media, the mobile apparatus, I think they are tearing our families apart. They're also tearing humans apart, actually. Although we seem to be connected uh, in this uh, world much faster and much pervasively, but I think the quality of the relationship that we had, uh, we as youngsters, and when I compare with the generation of today, the children, I think we had much better quality of uh, uh, relationships or, or bonding with a with our parents or with our extended families and with our communities. In 2022, I was in Bhutan and in the valley of Bumtang, I met Ashi Kunzang Shuren, the Bhutanese writer at her home uh, in Bumtang, in Tang Valley. And she told me about a period of great social change in Bhutan. Uh, her family were aristocratic family but there was a social change in Bhutan and the aristocratic rule of the various areas was unseated. And there was a change in the way governance was conducted in the various provinces and various other changes too. And she told me about how her family adapted to that change. Um, it changed their, their station in, in many ways. Do you remember anything of that period of, of radical social change and reform in Bhutan? Yes, actually, I saw your podcast with Ajit Kunzang. Uh, Ajit Kunzang is a very good friend of mine. Uh, we were compatriots uh, serving on the board of Bhutan Nuns Foundation. Uh, so we were together for almost five years. And so we were very closely working to promote the nuns of Bhutan, uh, as we call them, nuns of social change. So we are trying to educate them about modern amenities such as uh, uh, menstrual menstrual pads and you know hygiene and things like that. So yeah, I know her very well. I've been to her place uh, at least a couple of times in Tang. She has a beautiful uh, manor there. With some uh, now she has converted into a museum. Yes, nineteen uh, sixties was a big social change in Bhutan. Uh, as we opened the door to the world to a south to India. Uh, because of the fear of the Chinese invading our country, we had to shut down northern borders. Uh, then there was some massive social transformation in Bhutan. The third king, for example, uh, 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 stopped or rather removed uh, slavery or what they call as fiefdoms. And so the big feudal lords, uh, I come from one of those feudal lords in the part of Paro, so we had huge tracts of land, which were actually tilled by those uh, slaves, so-called slaves. 
and then when the government uh, removed all the slaves and they were given land uh, land in other parts of the country certainly um pe like people like my family sir, saw a huge transformation taking place right in front of us uh, for example we had um, many people in the land but then everybody left so it was just left with my father and my mother to little that huge track of lands and those days it was very difficult to till the land just with your hands alone. We didn't have many of those modern amenities we have now. So it has to be done with cows and oxen. And so it was a very, very difficult, hard life, uh, tilling the land and, and, uh, and providing food uh, to many children that we were in our family. In your memoir, you write about that time, about your upbringing, and you write about your father and his uh, difficulties that caused great suffering in your family. To quote your memoir, you say here, ever since I remember, my father had a very bad temper and would often lash out violently towards his wives and the children. Whenever he was drunk, he would become completely psychotic and violent and would disturb the whole family. We used to live in constant fear every day and dared not even look at him directly in his eyes. He was a terror. And this childhood left quite an impression on you and influenced, as you write later in your memoir, your decision to pursue psychiatry. Could you say something then about, looking back now with your professional expertise, could you say something about the context of your upbringing in that respect? My father's behavior and his attitude and has impacted us individually, all my siblings and all my family members. Uh, even today, I dare not look somebody in the eye straight away on my first uh, glance or on the first uh, uh, acquaintance or meeting a stranger. I don't dare to look at them straight away. It's, it has become a bit of my handicap now. I only realize, oh, I didn't look at it in his face. I can't remember now. Uh, so that is sort of, yeah, that has uh, sort of handicapped me in a way, and I'm sure each of my siblings were affected uh, in one way or another. And uh, yeah, I'm, even today I live with a lot of those nightmares uh, that uh, we, we used to live every day in our household. And it was good to have a household where our mothers were warm, our grandparents were very loving and caring. Uh, we had enough of food and at least some clothes to put on. But then we are virtually living every day in, in a sort of a hell where we don't know what it is to come, uh, what will happen, uh, whether the father will get drunk tonight and then he'll have this whole night of psychotic behavior that not only disturbs our family, but the whole of the, the neighbors. The neighbors also, uh, after a while, they come to accept it as part of the lives and they don't even bother if we are crying for help and in the middle of the night. So yes, um, Looking back, I can understand now as a psychiatrist that he had a lot of those baggages that he had on him, but it was not fair uh, for for us, you know, to be, be impacted by the way he did with all of us, as you uh, may have again read in my uh, draft memoir that uh, uh, some of my family members uh, and even me, including me. We all had breakdowns, uh, 
sooner or later in our lives. And uh, yeah, we are all vulnerable as uh, we can be. You write in your memoir about your father's background and you draw links between his background and his behavior. I'm wondering if you might trace those links and tell that story of your father. Yeah, he was born in a very difficult circumstances. His mother was a nun, sort of a lien nun, to the extent that she was in a three-year retreat. Uh, you know, in Bhutan, a uh, three-year retreat is a serious business, as you know, Steve, I think. Uh, listening to your podcast, I know that you have quite a wide knowledge in this. In Bhutan, three-year retreat is a serious business, and it's done by only accomplished uh, practitioners. Uh, we don't go into a three-year retreat just as you start nunnery or something. You have to have a certain level of knowledge and experience to be able to go through such a retreat. So she was going through one such retreat with her so-called uh, teacher, who happened to be a Tibetan monk, who be, had been a refugee and then living in my father's household or my grandmother's household as a so-called um, teacher type of a guest. Uh, we used to have many of these in many of our houses, uh, homes in Bhutan. Uh, uh, the wealthier families will always have one or two and they will support them uh, uh, in the winters when they come home uh, in winters and then when they go into higher grounds during the summer, these families will support them with food and things like that. So I think there was this so-called Lama in a household and then they decided to go into this three-year retreat and I'm sure that something was going around uh, with, between them uh, maybe I think, and then so whatever has happened, uh, my grandmother conceived my father, and then uh, when the monk knew about it, I think he got scared, and for fear of uh, uh, retaliation or the rumors that were spreading in the community, uh, he decided to leave, and he he left Bhutan, and he may have gone to India or somewhere. So my father never saw or heard of his father. Um, and I don't think there was a good communication between my grandmother and and my father, uh, because I could know from uh, when in later years as a child, that they, 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 they never really communicated directly. It was always through us or through my mother or my aunt that they communicated. They never said anything each other to, towards each other directly. So I think that had a huge impact on his psychology. And then um, uh, he had to drop his studies uh, because he was the only child in the family. And in Bhutan those days, uh, we have so-called, even today, matrical uh, inheritance of property. So since my grandmother was the only child in the family, uh, she inherited the family uh, property, including the farms. And then somebody had to sit in the farms and tend to the farms. My grandmother was not inclined to do farming work. She had actually long before decided to be a nun. And then my father was forced to uh, drop from school and forced to stay on the land, but he could not manage on his own. So he was given in the foster of my mom, uh, my grandmother's uh, cousins uh, in another family, another household. And my father had to live with this uh, cousin's family as a teenager. And I believe that he was probably not treated well by them. It's quite obvious those days uh, 
the families can be quite uh, uh, discriminatory. Uh, and I think he had built up resentment uh, to that, towards this family. But it so happened that in those days, again, most of the marriages are arranged by families. You don't go out and look for your own partner, but uh, families would have arranged it uh, with a view to share families' uh, property as well as families are usually, uh, marriages are usually arranged uh, within families, uh, second cousins and first cousins and third cousins, so that the property remain within the families. So, so it so happened that my father had to marry my mom and later her sister as well uh, from that same family where he had some sort of grievances. And I think in later in life, when he had control over, the, over these people, he started probably showing those grievances, their resentment towards them. And that's one reason I think probably he was quite harsh, quite brutal with them. Although not to my understanding, he was not that wicked because he was, he was a brutally honest man, a very pious man, but then he could not control his emotions. He could not handle his emotions. And so he would lash out uh, anytime, any, anywhere. And that was the biggest uh, sort of uh, problem that we had, to hand, we had to handle as a young man, as a young child. You mentioned that the impact on your siblings and yourself was quite pronounced indeed. And the first breakdown of your siblings, I believe, was Nima. Your brother. Yes. yes. So Nima, I, I, I gave him a pseudonym uh, just for the sake of his privacy. Uh, at present lives with me and with my in-laws here again in Paro. So I married to another distant cousin family. And again, they, we are related by, by blood in some ways. So at present Nima is with me and he's four years older than me. He was a monk. He was a very intelligent monk. Uh, he could recite by heart all the scriptures that were uh, recited in the monastery in Paro. And he was a very handsome young man. And he had a lot of thoughts, which I could never imagine as a young child. Um, and he would, I am his confidant. So he would tell all those things to me. And I, my head would buzz off because he, I just couldn't contain those thoughts and those ideas that So no wonder one day, uh, while he was in the monastery and he had some responsibility to take hold of some properties there, somebody stole a ritual object, which was expensive by our standards at the time. And he could not really take it. And he lost his uh, ground. And then he, he became psychotic. So, yes. Um, and then when he became psychotic, uh, he was brought home. And we had another relative, my mom's uh, brother, who was a monk, who decided to take him into a faraway place, in a quiet place, hoping that he might settle down uh, there uh, with that uh, solitude. But I think his psychosis uh, became uh, more and he became wilder and he couldn't contain him in the mountain. So he was brought to a house one, one summer and I happened to come home from school for a summer break. And that's when we encountered him. And he was not himself. He was disheveled. He was disorganized. He was, uh, yeah, he was not in talking terms with us as I used to know him. And uh, and then, of course, he was boisterous as well. 
And then he started talking all sort of nonsense that we could not understand him. He started dressing up like a big um, uh, official and he claimed that he is one of them and uh, he won't sleep at night. So for about a week, uh, we were just literally pinning him down in the bed, hoping that he will sleep and that uh, he will not run away from the house. And my whole summer break uh, that summer uh, just finished uh, in a nick of time. And then we had to go back to school and then he was left behind in the house uh, for my parents to take care of him. And how did this affect you at that point in your life? Yeah, I was devastated, obviously, um, with all the things that are going on in the household. And then uh, uh, having my elder brother, who is my confidant as well, uh, when I've lost him, you know, then I suddenly dawned on me that now, you know, I become the so-called uh, the, the the family head, uh, rather, sub, so to say, the eldest sibling usually handles a lot of family matters when the parents are not in capacity to do so. And knowing my father and with all his disabilities, uh, I mean, he was a bit of an introvert as well as a paranoid man. So he would never interact with people outside the household. He would always use my parents, my mother and aunt, to get to other people. So knowing all this, I realized that I had a big responsibility soldier, and not just studying in school, but perhaps worry about what would happen at home. So this was a big deal at the time. I could be um, 13 or 14 at that time when, when all this happened. I'd like to talk about your schooling. That trajectory is very interesting. But while we're discussing Nima, it raises another theme, which I'd like to explore with you throughout the interview, which is the approach to psychiatric disorders in Bhutan at that time. You are, of course, Bhutan's first psychiatrist. And we were discussing before we began the interview that this is this is something you interact with every day. The tension between the, shall we say, traditional Bhutanese uh, views on psychiatric disorders and so on, and the uh, medical psychiatric view that you uh, hold. So I'm very curious, in your memoir, you write, the majority of the Bhutanese in my parents' generation were illiterate and believed in supernatural causes of diseases and especially those related to mental health. The family consulted many astrologers, shamans, and Buddhist healers. All of them pointed to the curse and fallout from not being able to serve our household deities to their satisfaction. In a bid to cure my brother's illness, the family resorted to all sorts of treatments, including Buddhist and shamanistic rituals, to appease the deities and spirits and other forms of traditional treatment methods including returning many of the family possessions to their supposed original sources to appease those deities. But none of them seemed to help him. Could you explain this, uh, the view in Bhutan at that time towards psychiatric mental health problems? Well, even, I mean, those days, uh, obviously, but even today, uh, majority of Bhutanese still believe uh, psychiatric causes, mental problems are related to supernatural causes or even to past karma or, or things like that. 
And those days, of course, we didn't have any modern mental health care services in the country. So it was very obvious that we had to do things that were prevailing around. And of course, my parents did everything under the sun uh, to, to appease the deities, to return those objects that were thought to be related to some deities, and to do all the shamanic rituals and things like that, even to the extent of trying to separate my doc, my my brother's soul from one of the deities uh, whom uh, they said that uh, one of the female deities had taken his soul as her consort because he was a handsome young man. He was a very intelligent young man. So it, he was an obvious fit for that uh, deity. And that deity happened to be one of the, the highest or the most uh, powerful one in Bhutan. Uh, yeah, we, I think the family made several attempts at trying to appease this deity to get his soul back. And of course, obviously, uh, everything was in vain. And as a result, uh, he ended up staying in a one-roomed uh, uh, house in the house, uh, in the house for more than 12, 13 years. Uh, at times, uh, he would break open the windows and doors and he would escape and abscond. And the whole village has to go and find him and put him back there. So as the things become uh, more difficult, uh, the family had to even uh, uh, hire or uh, take on uh, loan uh, some of the police handcuffs uh, to constrain him. And he would even break those uh, handcuffs because of his constant uh, movement or trying to get out of it. And he would break it in about a year's time. And that uh, sort of uh, behavior would instill further fear in us because uh, for one, we thought he's possessed by some deities. And uh, for, for the other thing, he does something with supernatural, breaking police uh, handcuffs. So we all we believe that yes, obviously there was something in there uh, more than human being uh, that we can't deal with. So those sort of uh, fears uh, get accentuated uh, by his behaviors as well. And um, uh, obviously, um, uh, eventually, I think my family uh, became burnt out uh, to the extent that uh, nothing really seems to help. If we oppose the traditional view uh, that was prevalent in Bhutan at that time, shamanistic, uh, Buddhist, supernatural view towards mental health disorders and the medical mental health model, if we, if we were to oppose them for the sake of argument, I've observed three, I think, general categories of ways in which these are interact with each other. On the one hand, there are those that say the shamanistic supernatural uh, way is the correct way and the medical model is incorrect. Then there are those that say the medical model is correct and the shamanistic way is not correct. And then there are those that allow for both to some degree or another. Some say that the shamanistic at the very least has a placebo effect and in that sense may have some effect. Others say, no, it's not just placebo. Maybe there are supernatural forces, but of course, medical model can also be helpful in certain situations. So it's sort of hybrid model, and there's a lot of variety in that third category of hybrid, I think. I wonder where 
throughout your life and particularly now with your experience. Where do you sit in that range of ways of relating to these these two different approaches? Yeah, with my life experience, uh, and of course I'm getting, getting older now, and uh, yeah, obviously uh, I would go for the middle, so-called the middle way or the middle path, uh, bringing both of those. I think both traditions have a role to serve a community, to serve a belief system, to serve some sort of a civilization. And uh, I don't think we can just do away with just because it is not there or not uh, uh, relevant. Um, for example, yes, schizophrenia or you know psychosis, they do have an organic basis. They do have a genetic basis, and science can explain some of this. And and with some medications that we have now, we are definitely able to treat them well, and they 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 they, they improve and then they sustain, uh, and then they can maintain their life. For example, uh, we did not mention, I had another brother who is younger than me, uh, who broke down much later. Uh, and I became a doctor by the time he became uh, ill. And we were treating him with modern medicines. And he had the benefit of taking all the medicines all throughout his life. And he maintained his job, he maintained uh, he had a family, he married, he had his children, and he finally uh, finished his, uh, what do you call, uh, the vocational life uh, service to the government. And now he retired, and he's a retired, happily retired man, but he's still taking medicines. So, yes, there are sort of modern uh, medicines and advancements does help certain mental disorders. But on the other hand, there are also a huge lot of other mental conditions, such as position states, um, such as conversion disorders, uh, such as somatization disorders or bodily symptoms, uh, for which we don't have effective modern treatment. Uh, if we have to treat those people, we have to give them medicines for over years and decades, uh, and then the side effects of the medicines will itself cause more problems than they would solve the, their problem. Uh, in those cases, I think the rituals, shamanistic rituals, uh, even traditional forms of treatment, such as even sauric bath, uh, these medications have less side effects. They are cheaper, they are much more culturally acceptable, they are easily accessible. Uh, so they do have a role and they do play a bigger role uh, in managing those sort of cases. So I believe that, yes, we have to make use of best of those resources and not uh, choose either or, or rather try and see how best uh, we can use those resources from different angles and from different perspectives. So there's definitely a role. And I, as I become older, I am becoming much more accommodative or rather more appreciative of the traditional healers and traditional practitioners as well. Although I do not advocate actively doing this in Bhutan because there are so many other forces who are doing that. 
I am just only one of those modern allopathic doctors. I didn't have to talk for them. There are enough forces who does it, plus, plus outpatients. Uh, even when they are with us, uh, every now and then they would ask us to let them go home because they want to do a ritual or they want to appease a deity or they want to uh, do some other things. And uh, we, yeah, uh, we, although I do not actively promote such uh, practices, I do understand their belief systems. And at the end of the day, it's not so much me and my patient, but also my patient, what the patient really wants. And they need to have their choices and also feel satisfied that they were, they were able to do everything that they could uh, think about. And it's not for us to control somebody and tell them that this is the only method that you should practice, or we are the only people who are affected. I'd like to return to this theme a bit later. The way in which psychiatry in general is received in Bhutan, has been received in Bhutan, and perhaps we could return to that theme when you, in fact, return to Bhutan as a psychiatrist later in, in the story. What about your schooling? I understand you were identified quite early on in your schooling as being intellectually gifted. You write here, during our time, Bhutan would select the best five candidates from the science stream after higher secondary examinations to undergo medical studies in India every year. I got selected to study medicine in one of the best medical colleges in India, Armed Forces Medical College in Pune. And your education was not smooth. In fact, uh, you had disruptions and interruptions, for various reasons. But eventually you did succeed in, in uh, completing a very advanced education indeed. So I wonder if you might say from the beginning to your advanced degrees, could you tell us about your educational journey? Yes. Um, for whatever uh, problems we had in the family, um, I think we were, we, were, we were gifted with high intelligence in my siblings. Uh, in fact, one of my siblings commented when I asked him to review this memoir, why you didn't write about our schooling in, uh, you know, we were all doing so well. And we used to get uh, first position in every exam. So why didn't you write all those? Uh, I did not want to spend a lot of time bragging about my family because, um, yeah, we were all doing so well, actually, uh, in school. And obviously, uh, medicine at the time was more, one of the most coveted positions that we, we could think about. We couldn't think of any other provision because it was not there in Bhutan. So, uh, so of course, initially I wanted to become a yeah a doctor and then become a surgeon uh, because I th knew that surgeons uh, could you know chop off all the pathologies and then and have a good uh, uh, satisfaction out of their work as well as they they fit into egos. But then for me, yeah, I I had to I didn't have much choices, but I had to become a psychiatrist. I had to pursue psychiatrist because of my family needs. Uh, so yes, I I was selected for the medical college and I went to Pune. Uh, because of all the uh, communication gaps, I reached very late in the college. I missed about three months of the first semester, which was five months. And it was a two month semester, the first one. And then in between, uh, after I finished the first three semesters, in the fourth semester, I had a, uh, I had a physical illness and I had tuberculosis of the lungs. 
and for which uh, they admit me in the military hospital for six months. The military has this rule they won't let TB, to be TB patients mingle around uh, in, in their army barracks. So that applied to me as well, because since I was studying in the army college. So I was in the military college uh, taking the treatment and really not studying. Uh, yeah, and I was mingling around with all these Indian army officers. I learned a lot of other things, but not medicine. And then when I came back, it was difficult for me to know where I should go. Should I join the fourth semester, which I missed, or should I join the fifth semester, which was originally my batch made? And I decided to join that fifth semester. And somehow the people didn't notice me. And I managed to uh, yeah, finish the college without having to repeat any of the semesters. So, and yeah, and in the last semester, before my finals, my father had this uh, major vehicle accident and he had this uh, head injury and then he broke his leg and I was pulled to come to see him uh, in the north part of India, in Siliguri, near to Bhutan, where he was admitted in a college hospital. And I had to tend to him for about a month and then I nearly missed my final exams. Uh, but then I, yeah, I tend to him, I went back sit for the exams and I finished my MBBS exams. Um, uh, yeah, without losing any any time. Uh, I was fortunate to do so. You said that you had to become a psychiatrist because of your family needs. Could you say something more about that decision and the motives that influenced it? So what happened was uh, in my final semester, fifth, uh, ninth semester in my MBBS program, my father had this major motor vehicle accident. And then he broke his leg as well. And my younger brother, whom I call uh, uh, Pema, who also had a breakdown, he was called from college to attend to my father because he was nearer to my father. He, my father was in Siliguri, a northern uh, city in, in uh, northeast of India, and my brother was studying in Ranchi, uh, about 1,000 kilometers perhaps. So he was first called to attend to him. But by the time they called me from my college, my uh, this brother had a breakdown uh, because he was attending to her father and my father had a head injury. So he was shouting and, and doing all sorts of things at night. And my brother was attending to him day in and day out. He lost a lot of sleep, I guess. And then finally he broke down. And then my father luckily recovered from his head injury and he knew that his son has become uh, mentally deranged. So my father sent him home, but then he didn't land up reaching home, but he uh, luckily came back to the hospital the next day and he lost all his properties, his money, his wallet, his wristwatch, his bag, uh, but he managed to come uh, at least in one piece. And that was when I think I was called uh, to attend to my father. So by the time I arrived uh, to my father's bedside, my younger brother has already left for home. And my father was attended by a younger brother who was in the village. He was only 12 years old with his uh, friend from the village. So, um, so this was the first breakdown of my younger brother. And then subsequently, my younger brother broke down again. Uh, at least a couple of times, and I had to, I had to take him to uh, two institutions in India, 
for his treatment. One was in All India Institute of Medical Sciences in Delhi, which is one of the biggest hospitals in India. The other one is Christian Medical College in south of uh, India. Um, even so, uh, at one time, uh, when, I, when I just finished my medical training and I was in Bhutan uh, preparing for my uh, uh, service induction, they have some service induction courses. My brother, Nima, which, whom I call the younger brother, he swallowed a spoon in the college. And then, uh, uh, I mean, I was told to come to attend to him. I, we didn't, I didn't know what was happening. But when I arrived to his college and I would go to the hospital, he was admitted. Uh, they have operated on him and they have removed a spoon from his stomach because he had swallowed the spoon. Uh, Fortunately, after the operation, uh, Tema's mental state has stabilized, perhaps because of the anesthesia that he received, you know, and uh, and he was in a good frame of mind. And I stayed with him for a week. I wanted to bring him back home uh, for for his recovery, but he decided to stay back to complete his course, complete his exams, which was coming at the end of the month. So I let him be and I had to come back and complete my induction course. So yes, first brother uh, having a schizophrenia and not treated for many, many years. And then the second brother uh, just uh, about to complete his university degree and then having this breakdown, uh, I had not, not much choice, but to you know find a solution, uh, if not other people, but at least to my brother, to my own family. Uh, so yeah, I decided to to become a psychiatrist then. And what were the next steps after graduation? I know you had internships in various countries, Australia, for example. Uh, could you trace for us the next few years of your career? I took my elder brother to Nimhans, Bangalore. Nimhans, the National Institute of Mental and Neurosciences, Bangalore in India. There's another institute primarily for mental health and neurosciences. It so happened that when I became the doctor in Bhutan and I was in Paro at that time in my hometown because I asked for a home station because of my brother, a uh, professor of psychiatry from Nimhans, Professor Srinivasamurthy visited Bhutan as a WHO consultant. The WHO wanted to promote mental health and services in Bhutan. And so he was sent as a consultant to consult with the government and also see some patients. So I happened to take my brother to, to see him in Thimpu. And uh, he has given some medicine and that medicine is called clopromazine. The only antipsychotic that was probably available in Bhutan at the time. And that clopromazine did help, uh, uh, help to my, my brother uh, also to a local woman who was psychotic. Indeed, she became quite well after that uh, uh, antipsychotic medicine. Perhaps she had a lesser, uh, she was a little older and she probably has a lesser severity of a disease. She became quite well. But my brother improved uh, to the extent that he was at least able to live and stay with me in my quarters in the hospital campus in Paro. Uh, and uh, this encouraged me to take him to India, uh, to Nimans, Bangalore, for further treatment. I went there and we stayed there for almost two months in that institution. And then um, uh, it so happened that there was this all India 
junior doctor strike, where all the junior doctors stopped working and they held parallel OPDs outside the campus. But the senior doctors were left with no support from the junior doctors and they had a huge lot of patients and they had to uh, look. I just then worked with this professor. I wanted to uh, learn more about psychiatry and uh, and because in my medical college days, I didn't learn much of a psychiatry. I really didn't have much of a choice. So I started working with this professor for two months uh, as his clerk uh, and basically collecting patients and presenting cases to him. And he was very impressed with me. And he also knew that Bhutan did require a psychiatrist by the time. And he asked me that he will give me a, a, a a position, a, a, a training position there in Nimans, and that I just have to go to Bhutan and tell my bosses that I found one seat there in Nimans, Bangalore. I rushed back home and then I uh, approached various uh, uh, my bosses, uh, and none of them agreed, uh, except for one who said that uh, he will consider my uh, request, but he would like to send more senior doctors to the same training where they have been waiting there for a long time. And I told him that uh, it's all right, so long there is a psychiatrist in Bhutan uh, who can take care of people like my brothers. And one of the directors were arguing that their priorities are communicable diseases like diagonal disease and malnutrition and things like that. But I was telling him that if you have one psychiatric patient in the household, He's enough of a problem for the whole family where he doesn't allow you to sleep. And we have to live with constant fear that he might run away from the family or even harm somebody or even harm himself. Uh, if you have cancer or any other chronic diseases, yes, the patient suffers, but he doesn't bother the whole family for the whole night. Uh, I mean, I'm saying, I was trying to tell him that, you know, this is the, the, the situation that we are in. I have experienced it firsthand. And I'm telling this because this is what it is. Uh, if you don't have a mental case in your household, especially a psychotic one, then you will never know what it is to live with somebody like this. So I was determined to convince them. Of course, uh, this all faded away. Uh, it's all faded away. I lost that opportunity uh, and I got married and I had two children. And then I, 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 you know, I was distracted by many other things in life. So eventually, after seven, eight years, there was a change in the, in the leadership in the Ministry of Health, and some young, uh, uh, dynamic leader came, and who wanted to then uh, start something new for us. And then this opportunity came that he wanted to send the more older doctors for pub public health related studies and more younger ones for clinical medicine. And that's when I uh, got a chance to go and study uh, psychiatry in Sri Lanka. It was not easy to get a seat uh, uh, in, in, in those days to do postgraduate psychiatry or even any other postgraduate studies. So I managed to find a seat in uh, Sri Lanka uh, and I went there. Then I found out that uh, they were not going to accept a foreign candidate. Uh, we had to prove ourselves that we are as good as the Sri Lankan candidates. So we had to sit through some uh, preliminary uh, selection exams, uh, which of course I did very well. But then uh, there were no structured courses in Sri Lanka at the time. And I was the only foreigner uh, 
the first foreigner to study psychiatry in Sri Lanka. So I went through a little bit of sort of um, uh, disorientation on what I should do and not do. And plus, I had to talk to patients who speak only Sinhalese and Tamil. And I didn't know those languages. So first, I, I had to learn the languages. I had to learn at least the Sinhalese language to talk to the patients. And then, of course, um, uh, uh, I had to then work hard uh, to learn. And then I had my family. I won a WHO uh, uh, fellow scholarship, uh, some funds, which was enough for me to for me and my family in the beginning. But then the government of Bhutan took out my fellowship. They wanted to sponsor other candidates with the same fellowship that I got. Uh, so they halved my, <laughs> they, they brought down my funds and I had difficulties supporting my family. And I had to decide whether I should keep my family down there or I should return them home. Uh, but I also realized that I couldn't have survived there on my own. It was quite a lonely place. Uh, although Sri Lankans generally are very nice people, but it was difficult to get close to them and to know them intimately. Uh, so I finally decided to keep them keep them in Sri Lanka. And uh, yeah, and then I had this bout of fever, one week fever, two weeks fever, and it went on to three, four weeks of fever. And finally, I realized that I have lost interest. I have lost, uh, I have lost energy. I have lost uh, that. And I started questioning the very purpose of life. Forget of becoming a psychiatrist. I said, why, why do we even treat people? I mean, you know, then you become very philosophical about all this. And uh, and obviously, I didn't understand. My demeanor has changed, and people in the department has noticed me. And then the head of the department one day told me that probably I might benefit from some medication. And those days, Prozac uh, was uh, uh, very popular in the US, but it has just come to Sri Lanka. And he only had some samples from the drug companies. Uh, they were promoting the Prozac. So my head of the department told me, I have some Prozac in my office. Why don't you go and pick them up and start taking them? Um, yeah, with nothing really much to to do, I I, I just uh, took those for 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 about a month, and nothing seemed to really happen. And then one day, uh, I was consulting another psychiatrist, uh, who said, "Why didn't you now take two capsules of that?" And I took two of them, and after about a week, things changed drastically. You know. I, yeah, my outlook to life changed again. I decided, well, again, I think I like to complete my my course and not, uh, uh, yeah. So, yeah, uh, when you become depressed, uh, things change so radically. Uh, you know, things become very surreal. Nightmares merge into real lives. And then you have difficulty trying to distinguish what is the real and what is the nightmare. And uh, and plus I had this responsibility with my family. My wife was much, much young, younger than me and I had two small children. Um, yeah, uh, it was it was a difficult time phase again in my own life. And I was always looked up as a strong man in the family. So I couldn't discuss this with my family uh, knowing that they only be heartbroken or they will be more worried than I would be. 
I couldn't go home to show um, myself in that state of affairs. Uh, but fortunately for me, this medicine worked and uh, and a bit of uh, therapy that I had with the psychiatrist perhaps helped me as well. And then I come across some other friends from Australia uh, who are also volunteering in Sri Lanka. And with them and with other friends, uh, I begin to, yeah, uh, get back my health and and start uh, yeah, enjoying the training as well as uh, having some other uh, fun in life in Sri Lanka. What kind of fun did you have in Sri Lanka? Well, um, I had these friends, Andrew and Jenny from Australia. They were volunteers. Uh, they come through the Australian volunteer program. They were there for two years. So Andrew was a, a addiction professional and Jenny was an occupational vocation, occupational therapist. So she was with my with my department, whereas Andrew was working with some NGOs. So they introduced to me this concept of holiday. So I said, you deserve a holiday. You worked so hard now. You take a holiday. And I really didn't know what they meant. Only when they, they decided that they would take matters in their hand and they will book, uh, they will, uh, yeah, they will go to a beach uh, place in south uh, of uh, Sri Lanka and then they will book us some hotels. And I had to take leave and then we de- went there for a week. And then I realized, oh yes, that's a good break. I was just watching the waves come in and go. And each time the waves went back, I thought they were taking uh, a bit of my pressure, a bit, bit of my stress. And in about three days, just watching the waves and feeling the breeze and sipping some gin and lime, I thought that they had taken away all my worries and tensions. And and then in three days, I was able to recover and then enjoy some of the activities that they were doing, such as snorkeling, uh, you know, watching some of those uh, turtles in the water, eating some of the seafood. And then we went on to to some of those hill stations and it took some long train rides. And Sri Lanka is a beautiful country. And then I began to enjoy as well as appreciate those uh, you know, scenic beauties and uh, and that, that concept called holiday uh, came to mind. As Bhutanese, as um, most Asians, I think we don't have the concept of uh, holiday, although we may be taking holidays now and then. But as every day is a holiday for us, uh, for many people who don't have much work. Uh, so that really helped me to revive and, uh, yeah, and regain my health. How old were you at this time? I was uh, 34 or 5, I think around 35, yeah, 35. You know, I I, I couldn't go to a medical uh, specialist, I stayed away from from the medical, from my, uh, because I was stuck up there in Bhutan for almost seven, eight years after my first medical degree, yeah. Of course, we had other funds as well. We had a friendship with another Dutch family, Dutch married to a Sri Lankan, they had three kids, small kids, like our children's age. We had, we took some, uh, basically driving in the mountains in this uh, small uh, Mitsubishi Lancer. And nine of us could fit into a small Lancer and we were, well, daredevils, you know, really having fun uh, in the farms. And so, yeah, we had also had a share of uh, fun in Sri Lanka. Was it after Sri Lanka that you went to Australia? Is that the next... 
incident, or perhaps I should better say, what happened next? Oh yes, then you know the Sri Lankan system required uh, their uh, their after their uh, specialist training at least a one year exposure in a Western setting uh, to be certified as a consultant psychiatrist or consultant practitioner. So I decided to go to Australia uh, with the help of my friends Andrew and Jenny, who uh, have returned back since. Uh, after completing their volunteers. So they helped me find a position there uh, as, a, as a junior, as a, as a registrar psychiatry. And this was a wonderful opportunity for me because uh, until then, I never really traveled or lived in a Western society or Western civilization. And I always wondered uh, when I was in Sri Lanka, uh, we used to get the stories coming to those uh, uh, resorts in Sri Lanka, and the tourists would uh, uh, sit by the swimming pool uh, with a book in their hand with the dark goggles and lie on the beach uh, bed for hours and hours. And I used to wonder what these people are. I mean, why they come so far away to do all these things here? I mean, you could have done this anywhere. So I, I had this sort of, uh, sort of, so, sort of uh, uh, inquisitiveness of what these people are made of and what, how do they think what sort of a civilizational uh, thing they have. And so I, when I landed up in, in Australia, um, my boss asked me, why did you come here? So I said, I related the story. I'm very inquisitive about, uh, you know, Western people and white people, you know, coming to Sri Lanka and basking in the sun for hours on end and wondering what what they they are thinking and why they are reading those books and oh you have come on an anthropological mission i suppose i said you could say that of course because i've learned a bit of psychiatry but i i really wanted to know more of how the white people think and live and then of course i come face to face with what is real life in a western society and australia is one of those um, good places on the earth, I think, where they're giving uh, free services, mental services to all this population. But in spite of that, I think the, the endless suffering, because uh, when I was going back, my boss asked again, all right, what are your parting words now? And I was telling her, if you can put all your our patients in a big uh, ship and send them to Bhutan, and you give me your dole money, you, all our patients will live in Bhutan like kings and queens, I say. <laughs> so, so I said, well, how is this possible? Well, this is possible because our king and our minister do not earn so much money that you give us dole to your patients uh, in Australia. But this dole money in Australia is nothing for them. Uh, you're paid on a Thursday after, afternoon and the money which is supposed to last for three days, uh, two weeks, they spend in three days. Uh, the money is meant for food, shelter, and some transport and some clothing. But what our patients spend on is on drugs, alcohol, and cigarettes. And they are the most highly charged in Australia, whether it's cigarettes or alcohol or, and drugs, I cannot even imagine how much they cost. So our patients on dole money blow up their, their dole stipend in three days instead of two weeks. So after the fifth, fourth or fifth day, they start fighting at home uh, because there's no money now to pay for food or to for, for, for drugs. 
And then they will start fighting and then someone will start saying, I'm going to become suicidal. Uh, some will say, I will kill somebody. And then the mental health services are in are involved. They will make a call. And, and I find that a lot of us, our Australian mental workers were burned out. And they had this fear that no patient should die in their hands, at least while they're on active duty. Because if somebody dies under their watch, solicitor general and all of other people come, submit the documents, and you are basically treated as almost as a suspected being, although you didn't cause any uh, active uh, intervention, but you were charged for neglect or act of whatever. So it was a very difficult uh, sort of situation they are in. And I I learned a lot of good things, as well as some of the things that the Western societies uh, are going through. And they are real, and they are very, very, are very, very, uh, uh, what do you call, um, relentless, I would say. You know, at one point, that was towards the end of my one-year tenure in the Australian hospital, I happened to interview one woman. I was on the call duty. She was in a bit of a distress because she met her brother that day, and the brother warned her that the people you are living with are suspected as murderers in the town, and you better watch out uh, because they might kill you. Well, I met her, and then that her escort was with her, and I had to separate this woman from the escort and talk to her on her own, and that's what she told me. And then I told, I took the escort out and talked to him whether you know what he has to say, whether there was any sort of danger at home, and he was very suspicious, and he looked, he was very introverted. And the next day, I thought I saw this same man on the television. And there was this infamous, uh, I think, Snowtown murders in uh, South Australia. Uh, it so happened that uh, 10 people were murdered over a period of five, six, seven, eight years. Initially, it was uh, people are killed for their uh, social security money. Uh, some people wanted to uh, use their social media money and then they, but eventually they had to kill around 10 people. And this man happened to be one of them. Um, yes. So uh, yeah, I, 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 I was very, uh, very worried about the woman. So I had to admit her in the ward because I didn't want her to go back to the house. And next day I went to the ward, uh, she had disappeared. She has left the, left the uh, ward because uh, obviously uh, she didn't have a mental condition where we can uh, detain her under the, the mental health act or rules. So she was allowed to go, but I was worried where she would have gone uh, with all that was uh, then blurting out in the news. But I just happened to be my last stage of my work in Australia and I was happy to get <laughs> get myself out of the situation because yeah, the situation are getting very, very, uh, very, very difficult and quite uh, scary as well. So there are, there are many good things I learned in Australia, but I also learned that the world is not a perfect place. Uh, every civilization or every society has their own 
share of problems. And, uh, and I think that I came back with this conviction that uh, I can give the best of treatment in Bhutan. I don't have to really uh, uh, have this in my mind that some patients can be treated better in America or some other advanced countries. They can very well be treated in Bhutan. Uh, perhaps we have some uh, things that we that you can't get in the Western world. For example, the family support or care, you know, the love. There are many things which are uh, not material, but uh, that we have that perhaps the Western world has lost. You know. So yes, I. It was such an eye-opening. Uh, experience for me personally, but of course my children and my wife, for them as well, it was a real uh, uh, life uh, lesson for them as well. Yes, how old were your children at that time? Seven, eight? Oh, or my, my son was, uh, uh, by the time they reached Australia, yeah, my son was five and my daughter was seven. And amazing, uh, one day my, my, my children, we went to look for a school in Australia and we visited four schools and everywhere we went, the headmasters were so pleased to welcome us and to please us. And we were rather shocked because in Bhutan or in India, you look for, for schools, you have to please the teachers and the head teacher. We have to give them presents and gifts. And, but they were there to please us. I mean, we'd be happy to get your children you know, then we realized, oh my God, then we should choose the best one because everybody wants our children there. So finally, we decided on one of these so-called multi-grade schools. It was a very colorful school. And then we decided we will find a place to live near the school. Obviously, we didn't have a car and I didn't want to drive at the time. And one day, my children brought a book from the library, from the, from the, from the what do you call the council library, not the school library. So the, so the teacher asked my daughter, who's seven, to go to the library and do a research on, on Bhutan. And she bought a book. And I've never heard of this book. And this book was written by Aung San Suu Kyi, you know, the, the, the Burmese leader who is uh, now uh, yeah, under house arrest by the agenda. And I never heard that uh, she wrote a book on Bhutan and that too, a children's book on Bhutan. Well, it so happened that she was married to a British, uh, Mr. Uh, I forgot his name now. He was a Bhutan expert and he has died. She was married to a British who was in Bhutan for many, many years. He was a tutor to the king and, and he was also a historian. And, and he has written a lot of, he has researched a lot of Bhutanese history. And while she was in Bhutan, probably she wrote this book. If I had... If you are in Australia, we have known that there was a book like this. Uh, and then one day my son came with a project and he says he's writing something on platypus. What is this platypus? <laughs> so it's a small animal in the water with a long with a long tail and they see. Yeah, so we learned a lot of things from the children. I mean, so the school system is different. So while we are coming back, we were touring a bit of the Australian states. So we landed up in in Sydney, where there were some Bhutanese students studying in, in Wollongong, is a university down there. And all the students came to meet us in Sydney. And they were so impressed with the children because they were talking the Australian accent. 
and you could they could never they could never learn the accent they said because they're already old enough to learn the Indian accent they were grown up with. But my daughters, uh, my children were speaking in the Australian accent. They were just there for one year, and they were given double like, double grades in one year uh, because they were doing so well. And um, uh, my son was writing essays, five pages of essays. He was only five years old. He was writing five pages of essays on a topic like something like platypus. And uh, I mean, the educational system at that time in Australia, uh, I think they were so different. Even when my children went to the so-called international school in Kandy, which is basically a school for expatriates, and they were taught in English medium. Uh, it was much better than the typical Sri Lankan school. But the Australian yeah, system of education at those days, I think they were marvelous, really. And that gave a head start to my children when they came to Bhutan, uh, because they didn't have problem with English at all. Uh, in fact, my daughter became a bit of a big bookworm so she read probably a thousand books and you know and of course uh, my son yeah uh, he never liked to read books but he he is very clever in his own ways and that Australian experience has really given them that um, opportunity or the head start. That's very interesting indeed in your memoir you share some reflections about Australia and places like Australia for those who look at that place and wish to go there. You have advice or reflections for those who look at Australia and say, I'm going to do whatever I can to move there. I want to live there. Uh, what were your reflections for people with that sort of a mindset? Yeah, this question is very pertinent, uh, Steve. <laughs> at least in today's context in Bhutan, I mean, you must have heard that there has been an explosion of young Bhutanese migrating to Australia. At this time, I think we would expect, I would think that's something like 30,000 Bhutanese, young, young Bhutanese are in Australia at this stage. That's quite, quite frightening for Bhutan because we're losing all our civil servants. We're losing all our capable middle-aged um, young men and women. And most of them are highly qualified because um, they do these ILTS and they all score above seven or eight and they go to Australia. But the sad part is most of them are not pursuing their profession. So they're doing some odd jobs like cleaning and manual work when they are actually professionals here in Bhutan. Uh, it takes a while for professionals to get a license to practice in Australia. Unless you go through such projects like that I did, you know, there are some provisions for overseas medical graduates to work in Australia for short periods of time, like two years. Uh, that helps both the candidate as well as the Australian government to fill in those uh, vacuums where they are not able to get their own uh, people. But people like us can fill in and you can also get paid like an Australian does. And we learn many of the things that Australia provides. That's it. Yes. I, yes, I really wish that our Bhutanese know what it entails to go to Australia, uh, how much hard work they have to do to be able to uh, survive uh, and, and think of bringing money back home. 
uh, a lot of them, of course, now they were even thinking of having permanent uh, residence there uh, so that they can get free education and free health services. So, so most of them are trying for that as well. Uh, and we're going to lose a lot of young Bhutanese uh, in that process. Um, I went back to Australia, uh, and that is another part of my uh, story that I have not uh, covered in this memoir that will come in the second part. I went for a sabbatical two years again in 2014 and 15. Uh, at that time, the exodus of Bhutanese was not uh, that great or not that big. Uh, it was only limited to a few uh, professionals going there for real study and people like me who just took a sabbatical. But after that, I think the exodus started. So when I went to 2014-15, again, I worked as a, as, as a junior consultant psychiatrist. Uh, that's about 15 years after I last worked in Australia. Of course, Australia has changed so much in that period of time. Because I went to Melbourne then, uh, in the second uh, tenure, which is a very different place from South Australia, which is at latest a smallish town. Things have changed so much. Uh, and I, I, yeah, I, I picked up on many of the things that I left uh, because coming to Bhutan, I mean, I was more, almost working as uh, in solo, uh, you know, and losing a lot of the professional uh, touch that I needed. So I needed to go back and refresh myself. And so I then went back there. And that time I took a, a big house, uh, something like a four bedroom house, because I could afford with the pay they were giving me. And I wanted to use this house as a sort of a launching pad for Bhutanese. At that time, I thought most of the students are coming there. It takes quite a while for them to settle down, you know, with all the things that, uh, you know, that is in place there. So I wanted them to use my house as a launching pad, maybe one, two weeks or one, two months before they can find their own place. And of course, I did host many students, including Bhutanese officials who came for government meetings they 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 want to save on their, their precious uh, paradigms and uh, live with me and my family and use my uh, my son as their uh, chauffeur and we had a car and we drove them around so i used them yeah that that uh, knowing uh, yeah that uh, uh, you know everybody needed some sort of help but once the exodus happens i think there is this pool so everybody goes by the links that you have, your relatives, your siblings, your uncle, aunts. And that's part of the Buddhist problem. Uh, we have a tendency to just rush and join the bandwagon uh, without really necessarily analyzing the situation. And I think as a result, I think a lot of, of them do well, of course, but some people will fall in the, in the crevices. And I think I already heard a lot of uh, uh, stories like suicide, uh, major accidents, uh, even a couple of kidney failures. So people working so hard, they could be um, hypertensive, they could be uh, dehydrated in a cold storage house, but they're not well prepared for that. And then uh, if you're not a PR, you to to go to a GP, you have to pay $100 first 
as a fee, and then you'll have to pay another hundred dollars to buy the medicines, and then you go to be a specialist. You have to book in advance in three months ahead. Those sort of things are very new and difficult for Bhutanese. So as a result, I think that, and, and then a lot of mental health issues. These people are coming back to Bhutan because they couldn't afford to see a psychiatrist or a clinical counselor or a clinical psychologist. And the medicines are very expensive. So we are now getting some of them returning back because they can't just cope and they have mental issues and they need treatment. And some of them, they are there. We are supplying them two, three months of medications from here because they can't afford to buy down there. So there's a whole lot of things going on. And I, yeah, I wish I, I was able to meet these people before they go or before they even take a decision to go, you know, uh, to know exactly that, that, that they need to be informed and they need to be informed. And then they take a decision, a rational decision. And not just go because your neighbor is going, because everybody else is going. You know, from Paro, where I come from, uh, almost every household has somebody gone to Australia now. So it has become a bit of a fashion. And uh, yeah, it's just only a matter of time. Uh, that the impact, the social impact, because a lot of young people are leaving and the elderly are left behind here. Uh, it's also time for us now to build the uh, old age nursing homes. We used to always talk in our culture, oh, you know, the, the bad side of Western civilization is you take your old parents into a nursing home and leave them there. That used to be, you know, the sort of, buzzword going around saying all oh, the Western civilization. But I now I realize that in reality, we, sh we should have nursing homes here in Bhutan now, because there's no young people to look after them. Maybe they will send them money, but then they're not here physically to look after them. Maybe nursing home is a better option than to let these old people linger in their own homes and not being taken care of. So yeah, a lot of things are happening that uh, has implications. And I think uh, it's almost like a time travel, actually. I mean, my experiences uh, in Australia is like a time, tra time travel that is, or even Sri Lanka. That's what I will see in Bhutan in the years to come. When I was in Sri Lanka, I was amazed by the fact that every Tom, Dick and Harry wanted to go abroad and earn dollars and bring home money and become rich. So the universities has sort of faculties. The doctors were leaving left and right. Almost everybody was, everybody was going abroad. It was in the 90s, the mid 90s. And then this phenomenon is coming back to Bhutan now. And it's 2021st century. And now everybody's going abroad. We are caught up with that disease, although in different time frames. And yeah. So I feel fortunate to have been able to see the better sides of the Western world, as well as some of the, you know, the dark sides, and be able to even inform at least my patients, you know, uh, why they are lucky to be in Bhutan and why they are getting a treatment 
uh, as simple as it may be, but they don't have to pay uh, from their pockets or, or suffer so much. Very interesting indeed. Thank you. You know, I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Dorji, we have covered a lot of very interesting things. I would be happy to talk for another 20 minutes or so about implementing psychiatry in Bhutan, or we could do a sequel, a second episode, leaving this as our ending, and then looking to a second episode to go in more detail into that. I would also like to host a dialogue between yourself and Dr. Caroline. Uh, that would be, I think, very interesting indeed. Do you have a preference? Yeah, sure. I think uh, we can have a sequel, uh, specifically probably related to um, patients, uh, you know, disorders, um, relations with, yeah, uh, uh, a bit of the Buddhist uh, cultural, uh, uh, you know, the nuances. Uh, yeah, so we can have secret, especially uh, in clinical. Uh, I mean, I, I I get to know that you you have a lot of ideas and also experience uh, uh, with psychiatric terms as well as um, uh, your Buddhist uh, background uh, that uh, you interview so many. Uh, yeah, so we can have a separate sequel to this uh, on on mental disorders and management per se. Yeah, I also would be happy to have a dual yeah, interview with Dr. Caroline. Uh, she has reached out to me and she reached out to you uh, uh, for me, actually. Uh, and uh, I also realized, and I listened to her chat with you, uh, I think a couple of times that she did. And she's a very genuine, very honest uh, a psychiatrist uh, who really means what she does, I think, and uh, and 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 I I really love the way she looks at uh, mental health patients and the psychiatry that she practices. I was lucky to visit her center in uh, Brussels, and uh, I I come to know that a lot of things that I aspire to do in Bhutan, I could actually learn from her through her experience as well especially dealing with chronic psychotic patients. Uh, you know, in Bhutan, uh, uh, those days, uh, my uh, brother's generations, of course, they all died. Uh, today, the young generation, yeah, they're left out, and most of them linger in jails because they are um, misfits, and they are looked up as different and as... And a lot of families um, are burned out. And also, they also don't want to take responsibility, hoping that the government will take care of them. And we are landing in a bit of a situation where, you know, how best uh, we can uh, support these families so that they continue to uh, help their relatives and children and not want the government to open up a so-called, you know, a center where they will be kept. I think families always wish if government will take over their families and and then uh, then uh, leave them there uh, there was i was i was uh, mentioning in my memoir, memoir uh, there was a burmese uh, psychiatrist who actually proposed to build a 200 bed mental center in bhutan uh, and of course the government agreed but then it it didn't happen for good reasons i suppose 
because otherwise we wouldn't have so-called community-based mental services where we train all our doctors and nurses to provide the medicines in their homes, in the communities, rather than take them to a large hospital and keep them there. Uh, so yes, uh, uh, Dr. Carolyn is doing a wonderful job and she's one of the few psychiatrists in the Western world where I think she's not pressurized by the forces of big uh, pharmaceutical companies or you know other uh, political uh, sort of things. So I think she's doing a very wonderful work, uh, work there and I'll be happy. And I was just telling her that um, uh, forces like her and me, uh, we can come on the middle grounds. Uh, I have a lot of baggages from the supernatural world and I, I have to accept uh, there are certain things that supernatural world is not not good enough or or effective enough. There are also very good things in the scientific uh, reductionist world, but uh, we are after all humans, and you know there needs to be a human approach to some of that practice as well. And you cannot be as aggressive as. Uh, by the way, I was also in in Johns Hopkins for a year. And I've seen how aggressive the American medical system is. They are on the highest expenditures on health in the world per capita. Something like $30,000 per, per, per capita at the time when I was in the US, 2007 and eight. One uh, night stay in Johns Hopkins uh, uh, psychiatric ward, they charge $1,000. And they have these Arab sheikhs and people flying over our heads uh, and landing up in the hotels, in, in, the, in those, landing over in the helicopters, in the thing. Uh, yeah, I mean, very, yeah, very, very, I don't know what you call this, uh, commercialized uh, medicine that they practice. So I think we need, yeah, simple people like us to really provide simple things to majority of our population. Uh, well, of course, some people can afford all those things, but we know that a lot of people in the world can't afford. And they just need simple things, you know, with a little bit of love and care, compassion uh, and kindness. Uh, we can make a big difference in the world. So sure, we will uh, chat again. Excellent. Dr. Chencho Dorji, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.